Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. So uh, today we're going to look at uh, all of chapter 2 and just the tiniest little bit of chapter 3. And we are moving forward in this book uh, this way. So, so far, we've seen this theme kind of uh, develop since chapter 1. Now, in chapter 1, there is this theme that's kind of resounding about unity. And not just unity out of shared values or something like that, but unity around the person of Jesus. And this is unity that is humble. This is unity that is selfless. This is unity that isn't trying to advance your prestige or your status, but it's unity for the sake of another. And I think um, if, if you haven't quite steeped in that yet, it will come up again. It'll come up uh, quite a bit in, in 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians, as well as the entire New Testament and the scripture at large. Um, and so we'll be adequately marinated in it, so to speak, by the end. Now, last week, Nate talked about the simplicity or, or the singularity of the message of the church. And he talked about how the message of the church is not just about um, how it informs what we say to unbelievers, like non-members, people outside of the church, but it also informs how we treat one another. That uh, because of Christ and Christ crucified, we look at each other differently. We look at the world differently. And I think uh, Paul made it his aim, he says it this way, to only know this when he's with us. Like when he was with the church, he only knows this. And by effect, he knows it very thoroughly. And, and I like uh, in the opening of uh, 1 Corinthians 2, he kind of explains why. And it has to do with the foundation of our faith. Let's look at uh, verse 1 in chapter 2. It says, and when I came to you, brethren, did I not come with, I did not come with superiority of speech or wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstrations of the spirit and of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And so it's not on convincing arguments or creative methods or dazzling rhetoric that we're saved, but we're saved by Jesus. We're saved by Jesus to Jesus. And I like that Paul, in place of dazzling rhetoric, which just to clear the air, he's completely capable of doing, uh, in place of that dazzling rhetoric, he uh, says that the, the, the witness of the gospel was accompanied with demonstrations of the spirit and of power. Now we can think of this, and, and it refers to uh, very clearly the idea of like miracles, like um, healing, deliverance, those kinds of things. But I think also something that Paul is, is directly referring to is the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and just the miracle that is us being reconciled to God. That this is not something that you just will yourself into. It is a gift of God. It's a work of the Holy Spirit to bring someone out of the kingdom of darkness and put them into the kingdom of light. And this is the way the gospel is preached, not with like, let me, let me show you how much cooler Jesus is than whatever, your emperor or your, your cult leader or whatever. And it's like, no, I'm showing you the power of God. I'm showing you the reality of God, and he is reconciling people to himself. And 
in chapter 1 and also here, we see this contrast being built in, in Paul's argument, this contrast between wisdom and uh, foolishness. And he describes uh, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, in such these kind of dynamic terms where he says that uh, the gospel was counted as foolishness to those who are perishing. And, uh, and even at the end of chapter one, uh, like Shelby leaned over to me and she's like, what, is, what does this mean? That the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men? Like, is, are they saying that God is weak? It's like, no, if you count this as weakness, it's stronger than anything else that you could imagine. And, and it's this profound contrast that he's making. And I like even here, we see him presenting the good news to the church in Corinth with fear and trembling, with, uh, with this uh, reverence towards them. And I think about this kind of two ways. I think of it, uh, and I think it kind of works in both manners, that there is this fear and trembling that has to do with the, the reverence, that, that Paul is coming to the church with this message, and he wants so badly to, to make sure that he's um, attending to the word correctly. Um, but additionally, he's also... Uh, aware that this is a, a group of people that are really into logic and rhetoric and speeches and, and good, good arguments. And so it, it, he brings it with a soberness about him. The good news about Jesus sounds absurd to the religious sensibilities of the Jews, and it also sounds absurd to the logical didactic of the Greeks. And some would mark it as weakness. But I like it because Paul uses this imagery really uh, efficiently, really expertly, uh, to create this irony. So this feels so in line with the way that Jesus would teach about the kingdom of God. He taught about his kingdom being everything being turned over, that the least become the greatest, that the proud are torn down, but the poor are exalted. Does that make sense? And now uh, this ambition to know Christ and his crucifixion only doesn't condemn further knowledge. I want that to be pretty clear because for one, uh, Paul wouldn't have written all the things that he wrote if he didn't want you to go further, um, if he didn't want you to know more. And I also think that this phrase itself, Christ and Christ crucified, is trying to say that we're not just required to know the bare minimum. It's not just this, this calling to know, like, just like what is the absolute basic part of what I need to be saved? No, it's, it's a calling to Jesus, to know him correctly. And this is even in line with our commission that Jesus gave us uh, after his resurrection. The commission was to make disciples. And a disciple is not just an adherent to a thought process. So it's not just like, hey, do you uh, believe that Colorado has 300 days of sunshine? It's like, sure, yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, I've never counted, but it sounds about right. It's like, oh, cool, would you sign this position? Now you're a Colorado sunshine Christian. You know, it's like, that's not what he's trying to do. The point of being a disciple is that you observe and follow the master and you let him shape and form your life. And so it's like this idea of knowing Christ fully is, is the calling of all those who call on the name of the Lord. And, and I throw around terms like this uh, pretty often, but I, I feel like it's, it's actually really helpful and really pure. The idea of theology in its purest and most profitable form is to know the truth of the scriptures and how they reveal Jesus. The point isn't to be like the philosophers of Paul's day or, or the, the college professors or the great consultants or whatever of our day. The point is to let the knowledge of God saturate us so much that we are formed by him into the image that he desires for us. And so this actually transitions really nicely into our next section. 
Um, if you uh, keep on reading with me in verse 6, it says, Yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are... Oh, gosh. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, excuse me, uh, and which has not entered into the heart of man all that God has prepared for those who love him. So obviously here, Paul is not condemning uh, wisdom. He's not condemning further knowledge, but what he's doing instead is he's redefining the terms. He's pointing to where that knowledge, that wisdom actually is. I have a picture, Elliot, if you would put up my picture for me. That's, um, that's the Oregon coast. Shelby and I went up there for a wedding a few years ago, and then we had like a, just a little vacation, just the two of us. I think ironically, I was thinking about it afterwards, that's called the devil's punch bowl. Um, so don't take that into this metaphor. But... Um, <laughs> But you can see there, there's, there's pretty high cliffs, and you can see that kind of rocky shore, and there's rocks right out, right out there. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking about this picture. I was thinking about this scene. I was thinking about the way Paul is addressing the church in Corinth, and by extension, every believer everywhere. And it's like he's, he's, he's inviting you to the shore. You kind of have to hobble down the rocks. You have to be careful not to slip and fall and break your neck. But you get to the shore, and he's got this little rickety boat. And he's like, the treasure's out there, you guys. This is how we're getting there, and it's just beyond that horizon line. You just have to get in the boat, and we'll go. And all the elite of the day are standing on the cliffs just laughing at us as we're standing on that ship, as we're looking out onto turbulent seas and cloudy skies, and we're looking out, we're saying like, wow. That's a lot. And they're saying, like, that's so dumb. Why would you, like, wh why don't you just wait and, and build a bigger vessel or, or travel a different way? Why would you do it this way? And Paul is saying, no, this is the way that we're going to do this. This is the way that you actually find what is true in wisdom. Because Paul is saying that there is a time and a place. There is a perfect, perfect setting and context for wisdom. And what he calls that setting is maturity. Now, Paul here is asserting very clearly that the elite, the religious and, and uh, like political elite of his day, and really of all time, are immature. And what we can look at that is like a sick burn, like, oh man, Paul's just like dissing Caesar and the authorities and stuff like that. But really what he's doing is another redefining. Because maturity isn't just associated with your age. It's not just associated with your experience or even the knowledge that you're able to accumulate. He's actually associating this maturity with your relationship with the Lord. And Paul is addressing Christians. We saw that in the opening of 1 Corinthians, that he's not addressing this to people who don't know Jesus. So what's happening here, what we need to see, is that there's this line that he's drawn where there are people that are beloved and transformed by God who have yet to become mature. And that is kind of startling, because right off of the onset, it's like, Oh, I didn't know that's how that worked. But we can see this tendency in, in chapter 1, and we'll continue to see it as we go on, and it's kind of a little bit part of the reason why we picked this book to teach. They're creating factions. They're creating divisions. They're looking down on other believers, and then they're lifting up other believers, brothers and sisters, to inappropriate heights. 
they're doing these sort of things that Paul has to come and correct. He's heard about that from this church that he himself planted. He's heard about these divisions and factions, these signs of immaturity, and he's like, we have to talk to them about this. Because they're beloved by God, because they are the church, because they have been transformed, their, their abuses have increased. Their confusion has increased, and we need to now bring correction. Now, valuable to note, and I think this is something that I always like to bring ahead to, is uh, the idea of it being reserved for the mature is not like a sign of cruelty. Like, because you don't know the Bible good, then God's not going to give you more. That's not what's happening here. It's like, because you don't do enough spiritual stuff, God's going to halt you. He's going to halt your growth. That's not what he's saying. I like uh, N.T. Wright wrote this in his commentary on this passage, if you want to throw that up on there for me. Um, Paul speaks in this passage of a kind of teaching that is only for those who have grown up, who have matured, who have, in their, who have their palates trained up from childish food and drink to appreciate and value the higher things. Having insisted that his gospel was and needed to be foolishness to Greeks and a scandal to Jews, he doesn't want them to think that this is all he has to offer. He really does have wisdom in store, deep and rich and many-sided, but it's only for those who can and will appreciate it who are sufficiently grown up in their spiritual discernment. And what I picture in this moment is, um, let's say you're, you're hanging out with a newborn baby, and you're like, man, I love this baby so much, I'm just going to make it the best dinner. And so you go to the store, you go to the butcher shop, and you just get the most gigantic, delicious, juicy steak. You, you season it correctly, you grill it fantastic, and you just plop it on the high chair of a, of a baby, a newborn baby, the baby who cannot hold its head up by itself. And maybe it, it kind of gums around on it for a bit, but it, it will not and cannot appreciate that food. And that's not to say the food is bad, and that's not to say the baby is bad. Does that make sense? And so this idea of maturity is, is a measure of being able to actually appreciate what is given to you. So maybe this is a good place to talk about wisdom and what, that, what wisdom actually means. So um, who here likes Greek words? Do you like Greek words? Especially easy to pronounce Greek words? Let's go for some easy to pronounce Greek words. The Greek word for, Sof the Greek word for wisdom is Sophia, which is like the, the modern name we get, Sophia. Um, and it, and it pretty, pretty uh, easily relates to the way that we think about wisdom today. Um, but I've heard somebody explain that uh, there's like some sort of dichotomy between wisdom and, and intelligence. And the idea is like wisdom is somehow applied intelligence. And I'm not sure where that came from. I think that's sort of a ma modern machination or something like that. But um, through dictionaries, what we understand for wisdom, especially in Paul's context, is just skillful knowledge. It's knowledge that is profitable and useful and good. Now, this, uh, the way that Paul's referring to wisdom, what he calls true wisdom, the, the, the wisdom that is from God, he says that the smartest, most rich, most capable people of this age cannot, they, it's not that they don't, they cannot acquire this wisdom. Why? Because it's hidden. Because it's kept a secret. It's, it's veiled in, in a mystery. This word mystery comes up a lot in the New Testament and I think for this one, uh, the Greek word is mysterion. Uh, and this one doesn't really line up with the way that we use mystery today. <laughs> because when I think mystery, I don't know about you, I think of like crime and drama and Sherlock Holmes and Scooby-Doo and those kinds of things. <laughs> um, and for the first century uh, leaders, 
um, especially like thought leaders and philosophers and rhetoricians and these kinds of people, they would refer to the mysterion as things that are secret, things that can only be understood when they are explained to you. And so again, it's this position for uh, status and prestige where it's like we have a mysterion, we have a yoke of teaching that is, that is veiled because we're smarter than you. But Paul kind of directly opposes that idea. Look at verse 7 again. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, a hidden wisdom, which God has predestined before the ages to our glory. Now, if, if you were with me and we were all sitting in that church in, in ancient Corinth all these years ago, now our ears have perked. You mean to say there's deeper wisdom that even the smarty pants can't acquire? That God has saved it? He's always had it? but he's kept it for me for a later time. Now, I wanted to take a moment just to talk about this phrase, to our glory, um, because that sounds sort of disturbing, especially how much we harp on humility around here. Um, and, uh, and I want to uh, make it clear, like all the glory belongs to Jesus. And there's actually a really clean and easy explanation for why he says, to our glory. Um, so when we talk about sort of the phases of your life with Christ, like you begin your life with Jesus through justification, that Jesus justifies you, and we call that justification. And then for the rest of the time that you're with Jesus, you're in this process called sanctification, which means you're being formed to be more like Jesus. And then finally, when we are with Jesus in his glory, whether that's by death or some sort of perusia, second coming of Jesus, whatever, um, that is our glorification, that is not to say that we become God and we become glorified, or like you get this wisdom and then people start worshiping you like they worship Jesus. That's not at all what it's saying. But it's saying that we get to be with God in his direct presence, that is his glory. Does that make sense? So let's keep looking at uh, the way Paul explains this wisdom. In verse 8, it says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So we get a, a description of what this wisdom actually is. It's not just the practical wisdom of this age, like, man, you're going to understand how to, how to like, uh, do crazy math because Jesus is going to tell you about crazy math. It's not those kinds of things. It's, it's wisdom directly concerning Jesus, that if the authorities of the time of Jesus would have understood this wisdom, they would not have hated Jesus. They would have loved him. And to a, to a certain extent, that's where we see the disciples, those who were faithful to him, though their wisdom was pretty imperfect, they didn't really understand everything that was going on. But what they did understand, it's like, I don't, I don't know what Jesus is talking about. I don't know what's going to come next, but I know that he is worth trusting and following. And I like to say this because it's, it's, it's valuable, especially as you're kind of forming your theology of the cross, that it's always been God's plan for Jesus to die. This wasn't an accident or a surprise or, or a last minute, like, attempt to try and fix things. This is always God's plan, um, is for Jesus to die on our behalf. But the idea is just kind of making that emphasis that this wisdom makes you not hate Jesus. And without this, uh, without this wisdom, it's easy to actually hate Jesus when you know the truth about him. And so Paul describes this wisdom with really remarkable terms. If we just keep looking in verse 9, but just as it is written, Thing, things which eye has not seen and ear has he not heard and which have not entered the heart of a man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Now, this quote that Paul offers is, is pretty similar to Isaiah 64, though the wording is not exactly the same. So what most people think is that this was 
uh, quoting a popular writing of the day that just hasn't made it to us. And sometimes you read things like that and you're like, what? How can I, how can I accept something like this? Don't worry about it, because what he actually says is really staggering. <laughs> what he actually says is the content of what he's saying is actually really beautiful. What he's saying is that this wisdom that he's harping on about is so great that no one has ever seen anything like it. Can you, like, no one has ever even imagined something like this. That is so grand, isn't it? And as a, as, a, as a lover of reading the Bible and as a, as a uh, like a, I, I, I want to become a teacher of the Bible, those kinds of things, I'm, I'm very quick to identify and want to appropriately read hyperbole because that's just part of regular rhetoric. Like it's, you, you use exaggerations to, to emphasize a point. But here, I'm, I'm sort of inclined to believe that he's not exaggerating. <laughs> And, and just as a test, think about eternity really quick. Just, just You can close your eyes if you want to. Think about something that is eternal, endless. Try to picture a bottomless ocean, just really quick in your mind. Can anybody, can anybody fathom a bottomless ocean? Because if you can, you, you're not. Like, like, because it's, it's bottomless. Like, that is brain-breaking stuff, and this is at the essence what God is. That for him to say, I am uncreated from eternity's past to eternity's future, that's wild, crazy stuff that we cannot wrap our minds around. So I'm inclined to believe him when he's like, the things I have to tell you about myself, you've never even imagined something like this. And the beauty of God is that he is so consistent and he never changes. So can you, with, with me for a moment, just stare at the sun and realize you never change but there's things about you that are infinite. So it's not that you're going to surprise me and be like, oh yeah, I'm actually completely different than I said I was. No, you're going to surprise me with how consistent in your character you are. The things about God, the knowledge of God is tremendous. And so with this, it's kind of difficult to summarize what it is. Uh, but I hope that it, it, it can tantalize you enough to desire it. Because even the greatest minds of all the generations that have come before us have only begun on this adventure. That they've only just gotten kicked off the shore, gotten past the first couple rocks. You know what I'm saying? And, the, and, and it's amazing because Paul teaches us very directly how to acquire this wisdom. So let's, let's keep looking. Verse 10. <clears throat> For God... For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of this world, but the Spirit who is from God. So we may know the things freely given to us by God. Verse, thir verse 13. Which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. Let's break this down just a little bit. The focus of this section is the Holy Spirit. And I think sometimes his role has been misunderstood or misrepresented in a lot of places. But I like here his role is given a glorious, attentive gaze. And it reminds me genuinely of the way that Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit. Look at John 14, 26. If you, if you don't want to flip there, it will be on the screen. It says, but the helper, 
The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I said to you. The Holy Spirit isn't like just a force to do spiritual stuff. You know, the Holy Spirit isn't just like what you feel when you have goosebumps and you're getting healed. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. And he's uh, revealing the deepest and most precious truth. I like um, Jesus continues in John 16. He says, I have more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. And right here, this, is, this feels like directly where Paul is drawing from when he says verses 10 and 11. For to us, God revealed them through the Holy Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. I like that picture so much because this searching imagery makes me picture like, these, like a mine with treasures untold that's impossibly deep that you're just going to continue and continue to draw value from. And, and I think there's, there's good Trinitarian theology here. We're not going to get off on like a crazy wild uh, bunny trail or anything like that. But we know that the, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Father are of the same essence. They're not like the Holy Spirit is just like an agent of the Father, that sort of stuff. But the in- image of searching, I think, is for us to indicate that this is not just like an instant download. Like once you cross this threshold of maturity, all of a sudden you know everything. That would be terrifying and awful. I don't, I, don't, I don't even know how to compare that to something, you know? It's like, that's just like, that would be awful to just suddenly know so much, you know? Um, so Paul comes back around, um, and he's continually applying this, this contrast that he's been using since chapter 1. In verse 12, he says, For we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And Paul's reiterating here, just in case we missed it through his general train of thought, is that we're not getting this through great teachers or great teaching methods. This is something that has been produced by the Lord himself and given to us. But beyond that, it's something that is taught. Paul says he teaches these things. He will talk to you about these things. And what an what like, amazing demonstration of the grace of God that not only is this like impossible to understand stuff, but he will use human teachers inspired by the Holy Spirit to teach it. And this isn't something that we can just get from, it's not concerning the sort of cares of this world, and it's not something that we're going to get by, by following those trains of thought, but it, it wouldn't really serve their purposes anyways. And again, this is not a means of prestige, and sometimes it can feel like that, but I think that's why reading in context is so valuable, because Paul will continue to go back to this idea that we are members of one body, that there's not a part of the body that is more honorable or more acceptable than another part of the body. And so if Paul has this wisdom, he's not using that to make other people feel dumb, but he's inviting them to come and explore this, this all this all-encompassing adventure that is the knowledge of God. And beyond that, it's an easy place to uh, have your theology kind of improved and grown, and you look down on people who don't know Jesus. Like, how could you be so stupid to be an atheist? And it's like the grace and mercy of God is, is applying to you and saying, you too are that stupid. You, we were all like sheep and gone astray. 
It was while we were sinners that God died for us. This, this is not a place for you to be elevated. There's, there's a curve of confidence, you guys. And, and I believe this so critically that the closer you get to Jesus, the more you know him, the more you realize you don't know. The more you realize, oh my gosh, I actually really need him in every moment all the time. And, and, I, and I picture that, 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 uh, that uh, really awkward conversation that Jesus has with his disciples where they're like, so who's the greatest? You know, which one of us is like the best? Which one of us is going to be like the man when you're, you're on the throne? And he's like, let me, let me see that, that kid. Come, come over here, kid. Unless you become like this little child, you don't even enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, woof, that's not what I expected him to say. <laughs> you know, like, that's not what I expected this to go to. You know, like, unless you realize that you have no status, you have no rights, you, you aren't bringing anything to the table, but I'm bringing you along. You have to trust him. And the greatest in the kingdom of God are the people who trust God the most. Yeah. The people who know that they can do the least. Yeah. And these are the people that actually have the knowledge of God, the people who actually understand. And that's not to condemned confidence. You should have confidence, but your confidence, your boast is in God. And so when we realize his glory and his mercy towards us, that should compel us all the more to appeal to those who don't follow him. To say, come, call on the name of the Lord, because you're not going to figure it out. You're not going to figure it out in ivory towers. You're not going to figure it out in, in the arms of a lover. You're not going to figure it out anywhere else. Let's keep going to the end of chapter 2. Verse 14. But a natural man, some of your translations may say a mere human, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. But he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ? Now, this is, again, looping back to this, this initial argument that the, the, the knowledge of God, the cross of Christ, appears as foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are, to use Paul's language, in the flesh. I think even the, the original language here would say somebody who is soulish, somebody who only looks from their own perspectives, not somebody who's looking from God's perspective. And, and I think it's worth it to mention here, we'll read the word spiritual in the Bible and that is not a blanket generic term. When we read spiritual, like later on, I, I did Wednesday night and we talked about spiritual gifts. In 1 Corinthians 12, it says, now, when we're talking about spiritual gifts, that's not to say like, oh, because I, I have this sort of esoteric spiritual sort of outlook on life, I have gifts. It's like, no, these are gifts from the Holy Spirit, not from just general generic spirituality. Because that was true of their day. Even though they were great rhetoricians and, and logicians and these, these people of, of logic and, and rhetoric, this, this sort of stuff, um, they still were very religious people. They still believed in gods who would come down and, and like do stuff in, in the real world. They were still very religious and spiritual people. Just like today, you'll meet people who are like, yeah, I don't go to church. I don't have any sort of religious outlook, but I'm very spiritual. And... I just want to say, this is not that. What he's saying is from the Holy Spirit, there comes value. And it's only from the Holy Spirit that you'll actually see this value. 
Because sometimes you, you, you're in fellowship with, with spiritual people who are open to uh, metaphysical things and, and things that we can't necessarily understand um, like uh, tactily and these kinds of stuff. And we'll come to the idea of like denying yourself and worshiping exclusively Jesus. And it's like, I don't know. That doesn't sound right. I feel like we should be able to, the, 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 the door should be broader than that. Because this, the value of this truth comes from the Holy Spirit. The value of this truth doesn't come from your logic. It comes from the Holy Spirit, who now informs our minds what is correct and true. And by the Holy Spirit, it's continually uncovered until the end of our days. I love this. Um, Paul quotes Isaiah 40, For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Now this quote just amplifies the intensity because if you think about the prophet Isaiah, who's a pretty cool guy, he said some really amazing things. He saw some really amazing things in his time. But to him, it's like, this was an absurd thought. Like, who has the mind of God? Like, who can know the mind of God? This was considered like an outrageous thing. And Paul's like, he didn't even realize at the time that he was alluding to this moment where I told you, you can know the mind of God. That you can actually know the mind of God through Christ Jesus. Now, to close, uh, it's always, always important to read the Bible in context of the Bible. It's always important to read the Bible in its own context. The Bible is, is really good about interpreting itself but also in context of culture and those kinds of things. And I got to tell you guys, honestly, I knew I was teaching this. I knew weeks ahead of time, Nate and I put it on the calendar. I knew this was going to be my section. I've talked about this passage more than once, not necessarily in a formal like full sermon just about uh, 1 Corinthians 2. But when I got done, I, I was in my office by myself writing this message, and I literally out loud said, Wow because this is not what I thought it was. I was coming to this, and I even told our staff on, on, on Tuesday, like, I'm excited to talk about true wisdom and how we get it. And I'm excited to give people some good practical tools on how to get there and how to help themselves grow in the Lord and those kinds of things. And I, and I got to the end, and I was like, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. This is not what I thought it was going to say. And so even to us, as we sit here, we may be like the Corinthians, who were, uh, were probably in a setting not unlike this, where they're sitting and listening to somebody read this word to them. And they're like, finally, he got past that scary stuff at the beginning. <laughs> Beloved of Christ, you need to get your crap together. Because let me, let me name specific things that you're doing poorly. And they're like, finally, we got past that. Because we're now we're talking about good stuff the wisdom of God, the depths of God, the Holy Spirit. We're talking about good stuff. And we realize now, the entire time, he's been weaving this together, not as a bunny trail. I, I want to repent before all of you and confess, I've literally taught that before. Where I'm like, this feels so out of place. And, and, and in other places, in Paul's writing especially, where it's like, it just feels like he gets off on, on some tangent and then eventually gets back to the point he was making. But believe it or not, Paul is incredibly smart and inspired by the Holy Ghost. That he's not, this is not a bunny trail. This is not a tangent. This is the same argument that he's been offering from the first verses of chapter one. You are beloved of God. You are God's church. And you have faltered. I picture us again on that shore. 
that we're on that rocky beach and the waves are raging and the storm clouds are coming in and Paul's got this rickety boat and we're all yelling at each other. Well, well, I was discipled. I have, I have, I have ministry credentials, so I'll be the first one to get on the boat. And then somebody's like, well, I have more faith than you do, so I'll be the first one to get on the boat. And it's like, well, I have faith that God provides financially, and I'm blessed, so I'll get on the boat. And divisions have driven stakes through the unity that is, by Paul's own admission, the body of Jesus. And I, and I don't want to consider us exempt from this kind of thing, because I believe Paul wrote this to us today by proxy of the Corinthians, because it's like, look what could be if you would just grow can you imagine? Can you imagine the Corinthians sitting there and their ears perk and they're like, oh, wisdom, like beautiful wisdom, treasures of Christ. If we just jump over the chapter division for a moment into chapter three, look at this. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as a spiritual man, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, because you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now, you are not able. This wasn't a bunny trail. This wasn't a random aside. This was conviction. This was to say, this desire of your heart to know God and to grow deeper and to grow in wisdom, that's pure. That's from the Lord. And I'm telling you, it's there. The opportunity is there. It's here now. But because of your divisions, the way that you don't love each other, the way that you treat one another, I can't even talk about these things. And so my, my, my goal this morning is not to like, and now I will begin the list of all of your sins. Things that I've noticed, things that I've received from God, and things that people are talking about you about, and, and we'll just go through that list so you can feel those things. But genuinely, you guys, I, I want to invite the Lord to do that this morning. Because some of you may be sitting here and like, oh yeah, I know who you're talking about. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know who's immature. Some of you may be like, is this not maturity? I don't, I don't know what maturity looks like. I, I honestly, like, I don't know in, in what respect I'm supposed to grow. Because when I look at the person of Jesus, this seems remarkable and impossible. The way that he, he loved people and he had patience and this, this selfless love for others. Like, I don't even know how to, how to relate that to my life, much less imitate it. And I believe, I believe it occurred before the chapter division <laughs> to the minds of the Corinthians where it's like, he's talking about these two people the, the, the spiritual person and, and the person who's, who's merely human, the person in the flesh. And he started the letter out very strong. So which one does he think I am? And which one am I, genuinely? And I, and I think this is a, a personal charge, but I don't think there's really much that we do that uh, doesn't take its shape, not only like in our interior, but also in our community, that I think there is growth for us. I, I, don't, I don't think we're like uh, 
the worst. I don't know. It's not really worth it to compare yourself to other people. But I, I would be remiss to not think that I don't have room to grow. And I think if you would take a, a, a short look at yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to examine you, you would realize, I too have a lot of room to grow in the way that I love my brothers and sisters, in the way that I, I think about people outside of the church, the way that I think about myself. And I think the Lord wants to identify those things this morning. Because I don't think we're exempt from this, this boat, you guys. I think like the Lord, Lord didn't say that to us to just tell us, like, but the door's closed, so shut up and sit down. <laughs> Climb back up that cliff with those, those rulers of this age, because you're not going to get out on this water. But if I could just really hammer this metaphor home, in real life, I get seasick so easy. Like, crazy easy. Like, I got seasick watching the ocean from my car. Like, that's not even an exaggeration. I literally had to, like, lay down for, like, an hour. And I think there's a lot of us who are, are in that same space. And maybe for me, it's an inner ear thing, and that's where the metaphor starts to break down. But you know how you get really good at standing on a boat? You stand on a boat. You, you grow up. You get over it. You know? And, and I was on this whale-watching tour... And there was a dog on the boat, you guys, and what, a, what an arrogant dog it was. With four legs, it could stand up. You know, it's like, I've got two legs. Obviously, I'm not going to be doing as good as this dog, but the dog, like, the boat is rocking, and people are holding on and, and sitting down, and this dog's just walking around like, like it's flat ground, like it's the most <laughs> stable earth that he's ever walked on. And in my heart, I despised it. <laughs> But unlike me, it was not the first time that dog had been on the boat. The guy who drives the boat, he was not unfamiliar with the, the ocean midsummer on the Oregon coast. He, he knew where the whales were going to be. He knew the way the waves were going to be choppy. He knew what to do. And I didn't. And I, I, couldn't, I, I couldn't appreciate the whales in the distance because I was terrified for my life and I felt like I was going to throw up. It was really bad. I was... I literally took the rest of the day off. It was vacation. I was like, okay, it's 10 a.m. I'm done. <laughs> like, I'm going home. And I'm going to lay down in the Airbnb. Um, this morning, I, I want to pray together. Um, and I, I want to just take some time. And I believe the Lord will answer us when we pray. I think that's, that's really core to what we believe and what we think about him. But... There's something that gets lost in our traditions where um, we want the hard things to be done in the shadows. I love when we get to hear incredible testimonies on Sunday morning because the story's kind of over already. But to be there when people are going through something is hard. And there's something to the scripture that is, is really easy, especially in general evangelical churches, to skip over, is the idea of confession. And I'm not talking like two wooden boxes that you sit in kind of confession, but like confessing your sins to the Lord and confessing your sins to one another. Guys, I've been confessed to and felt uncomfortable about it. You know, much less telling someone else something that's going on inside my life. And our brothers and sisters, and I genuinely believe this, our brothers and sisters in liturgical traditions, do this every Sunday. 
They pray a prayer of confession, asking for the mercy of God. And I know what you're thinking. Like, they say their sins out loud? <laughs> no, not technically. But they pray this, this pre-written prayer, asking the Lord for mercy, asking the Lord for help. And sometimes in our, in our Pentecostal elitism, we think like, oh, the Holy Spirit will do that in my quiet time. He can. But don't deprive your church brothers and sisters of seeing freedom in real time. To see the fact that, like, there, there are people that I don't want to talk to. There's people that I don't want to deal with. There's situations that I wish didn't happen. And the Lord is correcting me. There are people in, in the body of Christ who are your brother and your sister, and you don't like them. It's not that you just, like, I don't, I don't want to go to church with that person. It's like, no, I wish they weren't. <laughs> in this thing. So I, I have the words on the screen, and, and traditionally, people kneel when this happens. I don't know if that feels too religious for you this morning, but I would, I would invite you to read it out loud with me um, and reflect on the things that we're saying. And then I want to just take time. We'll, we'll dismiss, um, and we're, we're coming back together to eat. Um, and we specifically put it at night, so if you're crying, you don't have to go right to dinner afterwards. And I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, we hope that you, everybody comes back for, for dinner tonight. And, um, but I do want to pray this prayer together, and then um, I would love to just open the altar. So if people want to come forward, receive prayer, or just pray with a small group or something like that, I would love to take as much time as we need to have the Lord examine our hearts. So let's look at this. And you can, uh, you can go around with me. I'll set the tempo. I know we're not really repeat-after-me sort of people, but you can just say it with me. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from the ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us. Spare those who confess their faults. Restore thou those who are penitent according to thy promises. Declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.